0: Good afternoon, everyone. This is Garrett with Critical Language Mentor, and we'd like to introduce you to our podcast with Diplomatic Language Services. It is currently February 2nd, 2018, and we are very happy to be here today in Arlington with Diplomatic Language Services, DLS, with Jim Bellis, the CEO, Kate Martin, and Molly Sampson with Diplomatic Language Services, and I also have with me Alex Soren from Forency, one of our constant podcast partners here at clm and we'd like to talk everything about dls kind of what they do and how we can um talk about their services when it comes down to helping language students not just here in the DC metro area but really across the country so I'd like to first turn it over to Jim uh, to kind of talk about what diplomatic language services is and kind of what your mission is and let you kind of explain to our listeners uh, what you do
1: here at DLS Uh, diplomatic language services got started by a foreign service officer whose last duty station was the foreign service Institute and so as a career service officer he understood the purpose of and power of language in the service and his last duty station told him what the Foreign Service Institute could do, and it also told him what they weren't interested in doing or what they weren't. And he then, after retiring, created this company back in '85 and started with just a few classrooms but grew very quickly because he discovered that there was a need that was being filled for. Uh, students that were out of cycle, languages that they didn't teach, they focus on 16 languages there. We focus on 85 languages here, and by focus we teach today, probably in the school, 36 languages, 35, 36 languages that are being taught today. And that's essentially the same format that we have now. We're doing for the government what they um, aren't uh, immediately resourced, and in some cases that we can do better, especially for students that are very good or very stru- or struggling. Uh, because we can teach uh, th- uh, those students uh, on a one-on-one basis, whereas all the class, almost all the classes at FSI, are done uh, in group classes. So that's the core of what the business is. On top of that, we've also added on curriculum development, which again we can do because we focus on using uh, native speakers as well as uh, 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 language professionals that are here. Now, background for me. I came here with a business background, not with a language background, and I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, have folks that were here when I acquired the company that are strong in those areas. And from that, we've grown the company. And so uh, my strength is in in, uh, making the trains run on time and to create a safe environment, and I get out of the way of the people who are experts, like Mike Molly and like Kate, who can then work their magic without the distraction of wondering whether the lights are going to be on. And I don't get in their way second-guessing what they're trying to do as a language professional.
0: Uh, That's great to hear. Um, Can I just have introductions from Molly and Kate as well? Uh, Just kind of a little bit of background.
2: Yeah, so Molly Molly Sampson, um, and I've been here with Jim for about 10 years and before Jim I actually taught English here when we used to teach English so um, my background is ESL uh, uh, teaching. Um, And so when I started I was kind of an assistant to the language training department and uh, so I did some in language training, then I moved into curriculum development, which Jim talked about a little bit, and now I oversee uh, most of the operations on, across programs, so in translation, interpretation, and curriculum development, and language training. Um, and so I do a lot of the operation side, but then I um, interact uh, as a subject matter expert with the recruiting team, the proposal
3: team, business development, and things like that.
0: Okay. That's great. And Kate, as well?
3: Kate Martin. I am the recruiting manager here at DLS. I'm coming up on seven years here. Uh, My background uh, was a bachelor's in German. I wasn't really sure after I graduated what I was going to do with that, um, but I ended up falling into recruiting for um, interpreters in Minnesota. kind of ended up liking it and ultimately came back to the DC area, uh, worked with a couple of other language service companies, and then um, came to DLS in 2011 So, um, and have not looked back. Um, what I do, as Molly mentioned, is I work with the hiring managers, project managers, uh, curriculum development managers, uh, to fill positions both on contracts, uh, mostly language instruction and cultural training, uh, but occasionally linguist work or testing, uh, whatever the clients really need. Uh, And then we also do a lot in the recruiting department, we do a lot of always doing outreach and talking to new people, um, people who are both native speakers of a target language or who have some language ability and are interested in getting into the field. Uh, So we talk with a lot of people in recruiting uh, and are always open to talking to new people.
0: Alex, do you have anything to add when it comes
4: down to just a little input about Forency and kind of what? Sure. Uh, So Forency is a um, language training website for advanced students and working professionals. Um, It's a daily maintenance tool. Um, And like you were saying earlier, we're usually able to take someone's level up one or two points on one of the official tests um, because our daily lessons focus on that kind of content started the website about four years ago and we're still alive so that's good. Okay.
2: Is it a subscription based model? It's a subscription
4: based model Okay.
0: Okay, and that's just a little background for everybody. If this is the first podcast you've listened to, um, Alex has been with us since the very first podcast, which um, was not the best by any stretch of imagination, but we're getting better and better each time. And we're gonna get into uh, a little bit more about what DLS um, does and kind of what you all are looking for when it comes down to opportunities whether that's uh, internships, full-time opportunities, volunteers, or just things that um, when it comes down to, most of our listeners are probably going to be students Uh, maybe military cadets um, or military professionals in the language sector mostly because of the connections I have, but also um, just kind of what things that are there to people to get involved when it comes down to DLS here locally, and also kind of where your locations are because right now we're in Arlington, Virginia, but we might have somebody who's a student at Indiana University or Colorado University, for example, and kind of how they can get involved or maybe what they could look at if you're looking for opportunities in the future and kind of how they might be able to get to that point. So, I don't know who I
3: Sure. Uh, so, as Garrett mentioned, our headquarters is here in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, we also have two smaller but growing schools in the DC area. One is in Herndon, Virginia, and the other is in Elkridge, Maryland, which is just outside of Baltimore. Uh, while a lot of our opportunities are in the DC area, just by the nature of working with primarily government agencies and military, uh, we do also work at client sites and on military bases around the country and to a more limited extent um, overseas so there are opportunities uh, kind of all over the place um, a lot of a lot of the opportunities are going to be for native speakers of other languages um, most of our instructor positions do require native level speaking ability or native level fluency, um, but we do also have other opportunities for those who are interested, but maybe their native language is English. Um, a lot of our, Jim and Molly both talked about curriculum development. Um, that is an area that we excel at. We do a lot of CD uh, for military clients in particular, and Molly can talk about that a little bit more in a bit. Um, and a lot of those positions do not actually prefer that uh, we have native English speakers who have some ability in another language but more importantly know the culture of another another language um, the country associated with the other language uh, as for positions around the country that are not language instructor positions uh, we do occasionally have a need for uh, cultural trainers um, that's an area that's relatively small for us right now but it's something that we um, are really looking to potentially expand upon. Um, that would be an option for future growth for DLS and for people interested in working with us. Uh, and then there are always just staff positions. Um, we It may be a, sound like a cliched term, but DLS is kind of the epitome of multicultural. Um, we've got a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds here who work in full-time staff capacities. Um, we do have three native English speakers in the room right now, but we do also have a lot of people Uh, working a DLS for whom English is a second, third, or even fourth language. So, um, you know, checking out our website, and we can talk a little bit about that later. Uh, We don't necessarily always have staff positions open, but when we do, I'm more than happy to talk to people who would be interested.
4: Can I ask you about the uh, cultural training, just for people who aren't familiar with it, Mm -hmm. what that entails and what kind of background somebody needs to have, and then you know, what they would be doing on, on site.
2: Kate usually recruits them, but uh, we work with them to uh, organize the curriculum or what, whatever they need to do the course. Um, they're generally short-term courses, anything from one day to maybe two or three weeks with small sessions. So a lot of times they'll go uh, to a military base or on a ship, um, and travel with the on the ship to wherever the destination of the the ship is going. Right. Um, and so they'll do workshops uh, or kind of briefings on what. Um, culture they need that 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 particular group is going to um, so it's like some do's and don'ts I, a lot of it's do's and don'ts and it's do's and don'ts in particular we have done most of our work with the military so uh it's do's and don'ts in a military setting so um and sometimes you do search and seizure and things like like this in a little bit of the language but mostly in cultural appropriateness right
4: got it
2: but yeah, so they're, they're relatively short um, missions, but they're really interesting. And we pull from a lot of different backgrounds for it. So they may or may not be native speakers. They may have a degree in Arabic studies and understand kind of the Arab world in general. Um, and a lot of them want people with that kind of background where it's a little more global because they'll be going to the region rather than just one country. So they may go to Somalia, Egypt, and Mauritania and those are the three cultures, which are very, very different, but kind of an Arab studies kind of person might right. might understand all of them.
4: And then do you guys, like do most of those opportunities require somebody be cleared or are there opportunities for non-cleared personnel?
2: Non-cleared. Yeah, so I don't even believe they require citizenship. Um,
3: it can be really any background. Oh, well. um, I do they I, I think we've had a couple that have required citizenship. Okay. Um, not all of them do, but the clearance, um, DLS <clears throat> as a whole, just overall, we do very little work that requires a clearance. Um, most of our positions do not. Uh, occasionally, we do some translation and linguist work that will require a clearance, um, but for the majority of the positions, um, that's not required. There are a few contracts for which U.S. citizenship is required, um, but you, you know we can talk about that on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And that's, and that's great to hear, too, because we did a podcast with No One Left Behind, an organization that helps um, in, interpreters and personnel in Afghanistan and Iraq who have mm-hmm. served, I believe it's two years. I don't know the exact details off the top of my head, but usually about two years or so they've worked with U.S. forces and have now come over mm-hmm. uh, to the country. And a lot of these people are uh, professionals in every sense of the sense of the word when it comes down to working with USAID, doing construction projects, um, things that are very, very intricate and they get over here and they have to work at places like Target and Walmart, for example, just to get by, but yet they have, say, a almost a 4-4 in Pashto, Dari and, and Urdu, for example. So a lot of them don't have clearances, but are still getting settled in the US. So I feel like that might be a really good opportunity for anyone like that, uh, that might know someone like that who's listening uh, when it comes down to having someone with those critical languages and also a very professional background. Uh, it would be a great opportunity where you wouldn't need a clearance. And like you said, for the most part, you don't need full US, U.S. citizenship, so it's an idea uh, for who's listening out there on the no and left behind um, kind of trail to, to look at that as well, where you don't need full U.S. citizenship, but there's opportunities out there for you that are more than just working at, uh, say, a Target or Walmart and just getting by. There's opportunities to use your language.
2: And if you are on that track, you probably know many of the people who work here already because we do have a lot of, we hire a lot of people coming out of that Interpreter, both from Iraq and from Afghanistan, um, and they work as teachers mostly um, because the language skills obviously carry over into teaching. So, with our, we have a large program called the AfPAC Hands Program, which is through DLI, um, and so we—it's pretty extensive. So, we've trained a lot of former interpreters who've come over to do language to transfer into language training, and we always need more of those
0: languages. Yeah, that's great. And um, I guess coming from a military standpoint, so say if we have um, a lower enlisted soldier who's a linguist who's struggling a little bit with, say, Russian or Farsi or Urdu, one of those languages per se, um, how would they go about kind of reaching out, to say, help from, help from DLS when it comes down to a class for maybe it's themselves or maybe it's their unit or if they're getting ready for a deployment and they want some extra help when it comes down to the cultural training or the language training, kind of how do they go about
1: doing that? Well, it's likely going to be through their uh, CLPM. Uh, okay. the, their their uh, language program manager is uh, the person who's mostly going to send them here. I mean, our classes are are open to anyone who would want to take them as an individual. Most of the people we see are being sponsored by uh, their, their agency or their... Or, or their branch, and uh, I'm not sure if we have exceptions to that, uh, I, I think we've, we've had very few exceptions to that, and then I think that's probably the best place to go is to your program manager and, and refer them to, uh, to us. Now, as a, as a contrast, we'd be less expensive than any of the government schools, uh, as well as being more flexible and responsive and adaptable to a specific uh, need, since we do a lot of one-on-one training or small group and we can be responsive in a matter of, of days. So on that end, we can do our part, but it's the funding and the, and the uh, job permission that they're going to have to
4: go, go after. Okay. Can you, um, you were touching a little bit about the responsiveness that you guys have, but I'm really interested to in know more about like, what you guys offer that other schools don't? You know, what's your bread and butter? we have a really rich
1: database of, uh, of past instructors that somehow are able to um, uh, keep alive in that the, the one of the challenges that I was presented with here was you have these really valuable people who have been successful at uh, training, and we have taught them how to uh, teach this particular type of student, an adult student whose uh, career um, uh, specialty is not language. Uh, they have an engineering or a law or any other uh, number of skills, and, and language happens to be a requirement, and they may be 40 years old acquiring their first language. Uh, all big challenges, and we have these instructors who have successfully taught these people, but the the government doesn't organize itself around my available talents, it organizes itself around its need. And so uh, these folks uh, are able to go off and supplement their income some other way or work for other schools. But to answer your question, uh, our talent is to stay in touch with them, to make them feel trusted and respected, to make them feel part of an organization that uh, we would love to employ them full-time if we just had full-time work. And then uh, by having enough of them, we're always, almost always able to, in very short notice, come up with an ideal choice for you based on uh, all the parameters that you might present as to what section of the country you're going to, how recent you want the experience, uh, what, uh, what kind of engagement you're going to be in. and We're able, through our knowledge of these instructors, to match you, the student, with the right instructor in very short notice.
3: And I think just to <clears throat> kind of piggyback on that, I think the responsiveness is uh, it's it kind of company wide. Um, certainly, being responsive, we're fantastic. Uh, our registrar, Alma, um, is fantastic at being extremely responsive to to clients. Um, so when a student goes to their CLPM and gets that permission and submits an inquiry, you know, Alma is on the phone right away. Trying to make it happen. But also, the responsiveness extends to, you know, once you get your foot in the door to take classes here. Um, We have happy instructors. Um, We, you know, our instructors are. You know, for the most part, extremely loyal. They like working here. Um, they feel like they're part of the family. Um, there are a lot of people who have been here for a while. Um, we have teachers who, you know, maybe they move away for a while and they come back, and they always, you know, without almost without exception, come back to DLS. Um, we have LTSs, our language training supervisors. Uh, they are all grouped by um, kind of language group, uh, like Romance languages, um, you know, Asian Asian languages, um, et cetera, and all of our LTSs have been at DLS for at least five or ten years, um, but they also are just. They've got extensive experience in language training, so they're, you know, they know what they're doing, and they're very. They really care about the teachers, so they're very responsive to the teachers when they have concerns. But they're also very responsive to the students when they have concerns. So they're really good at balancing both to make both parties happy um, and make everybody feel like kind of the same team. Um, within recruiting, we make uh, we make it our point to be responsive to all of our candidates um you know sometimes some a teacher for a more rare language just wants to know if they're ever going to get work we can't create work out of thin air but just you know i've heard so many times that just us being responsive to the teachers (coughs) makes them happy um just so they know that they're being heard so they they're more likely to come back to dls so we have happy teachers happy students um you know happy employees so the responsiveness just kind of we're not it's not utopia and you know can't make everybody happy all the time but we do our best and i think that's really one of the areas that we excel at um just based on feedback really
4: and just i don't come from the government sphere so (coughs) probably everybody at this table could answer this question but um on the student side do people come here full-time and take breaks from their job or do they come after work or before work how does that work
2: so we have them really all over the place. Um, we'll entertain any schedule. So there's there's times where we've gotten students. And so I think something we haven't brought up is uh, the government is more and more willing to do remote training. Um, so we do have a platform and can do anything that we do live in the classroom on Remotely, um, it works pretty, pretty well, and have uh, had good feedback on it. Um, so, for example, we ran one in Korea where the teacher worked from I think eight, uh, no, when did she? Maybe 10 p.m. till uh, two in the morning um, because she was on Korea time. So we can really do anything with remote training. Um, and otherwise, we do have students who come as early as 6 a.m. and will stay as late as 10 p.m. Yeah. So it really, a lot of our students are full-time students. So they'll do anywhere from four to uh, six hours during the day. Um, and that's considered their work, their their post, or their deployment, or where they're supposed to be at that time. Um, but we have a lot of people who do um, just evening hours. And they'll do uh, evenings or weekends um, as well. Um, I think another program that we have, which is uh, for for people who work for the intelligence community, um, we host the strategic language program. Um, so anybody who is a part of the intelligence community in the government and is struggling with keeping their language skills up, um, it is open to all of them. Um, they advertise internally, um, so we have the contract and we just host the program, um, but uh, sometimes it doesn't get advertised throughout the entire eight group of agencies that make up the intelligence community. So it's called the Strategic Language Program, or SLP. So if someone's listening to this, that uh, is that kind of person, can go to their supervisor or their department, whoever's in their agency, training or contact, managers,
1: or contact us, and we'll and we'll steer them to. The oh,
2: you, yeah, we could steer them to the right contact in another agency, but oftentimes they need to contact through uh, their agency who can find out about SLP or the Strategic Language Program. So, And that does part-time or full-time uh, courses for 10 weeks, and it can be any level. So it could be sustainment, enhancement, or familiarization. And we try to do any language that's requested, um, and they can be group or individual classes. You just need permission from your supervisors.
0: Okay, no, that's great to hear and that's something that I'm sure many people aren't even aware to tell you the truth and uh, With in regards to that when it looks at when it, in comparison to say the contracting realm is that something similar? With that language program or have, what, do, what do you see on the contracting side for the government side as opposed to is it different than say that? Government program or is it more similar to the military style where you go through your manager and then through the Contractor, whether it's CACI, Booz Allen Hamilton, lidos for example. Um, Go ahead.
2: I'm not sure. Could you pick Yeah, that? I'm not sure that I'm uh, not by, sure by, con- right.
0: by contracting you mean. if uh, Say if you work for, say you're a contractor who does uh, language services for the government, but you're not a part of the NSA or the CIA or one of the true government organizations like mm-hmm. the DOE, um, how do you go about uh, getting training? Uh, like, who, who should your manager reach out to here at DLS and kind of how that how that works if you're, say, a contract linguist or someone along those lines?
2: Yeah, I think Kate mentioned our registrar. Uh, her name's Alma, and she she's on our website, so the best thing would to contact her is either through... There's a there's a there's an inquiry um, button or what do you call it? Yeah, link. Link. Yeah. On our website, um, it's pretty easy to find. So you can either call her or just send an inquiry, which goes into all inquiries. But it's usually her that responds. Um, but yeah, so when Kate was talking about responsiveness, that's the easiest way, uh, most direct. But um, really, you can contact anybody in the entire website and <laughs> and get someone. So.
0: And just to make sure the website, um, I'll put it up here in the podcast uh, for our talking points, um, and I'll put the hyperlink as well, but just everybody's listening, uh, if they're on their computer right now, that Mm -hmm. they can go check out the website, uh, just to make sure which one,
1: what it is. Sure, it's www.dlsdc.com, or DiplomaticLanguageServicesDistrictOfColumbia.com. And that, uh, not all that pretty, but pretty effective short and sweet. It's a, a little less cumbersome than
4: criticallanguagementor.net, but <laughs> it'll work for us for now. Molly, I want to ask you about uh, curriculum development. Um, when you guys are recruiting... Ooh, this is what or, I like
2: to talk about. Yeah, it. <laughs> I like
4: it too. Um, when y'all are recruiting for instructors, is it a big bonus if somebody's coming to you with a background in that? Or how does that work?
2: Um, It's always... It's always nice to have. Um, it's not... It doesn't always determine whether you're a good teacher. So I find that there's definitely two tracks. There's people who are really good at development, and then there's people who are really good at, teacher, at teaching, and they're not always the same skill set. Um, so some of our best teachers have tried to make the transition into development, and it's just not, not the thing. And there's other... Cases where developers try to transition into teaching and it just doesn't it doesn't work as well, um, but it it always it is always nice because I think for development you need to have uh, very good organizational skills, you need to be fairly analytical about how the language works, and then uh, good English skills to be able to explain. So I think what Kate was talking about before, um, we do hire a lot of uh, second language learners. Uh, for development, because uh, they can explain how to acquire that language from an English speaker's perspective, um, and then we cross-check with native speakers. So we usually have teams that work together um, as a as a check of is the language accurate and the in and native
3: right. the way
2: a native speaks uh, versus the way um, an English learner would uh, understand it. Right. Um, but on the teaching side, um, you, you know, it's an extrovert's field um, and it's intense contact with another human, especially in a one-on-one environment where you're always on. And some of our developers are much more uh, introverts, so right. they they like to split their time between the two. Um,
4: and when you, when you guys are developing new content or new curriculum, is that driven by a government need? They put out a contract for a certain... Area that they need, or do you guys do you do, you do that, or, and you do you develop stuff on your own, or how does that work?
2: Um, it's much more fun to develop when it's funded um, because you can do so many more things. Uh, you can uh, so we've had kind of across the board experience. So with limited funding, uh, we can create a little some things on the fly. Um, so where you're talking about small lessons, uh, okay, here's the here's some standard questions to go with this article. We pick the article and those kinds of things we can do internally with teachers um, and help teachers develop their own kind of curriculum. Um, but on the other side of it, uh, we've developed full basic courses for DLI, for example, that have tests and have um, all the recordings done uh, in-house and uh, copyright sourced from outside places. And so we it's fully packaged. Right.
4: How often do you guys like to refresh
2: those? Um, I, that's that's the problem with curriculum development, I guess, right. is it's always outdated. Even the next week, it's right. outdated. Um, so we've moved kind of uh, into more of an open architecture model where you kind of have a, a structure and you can give some examples of of articles that you could use, um, and then usually, okay, here's more of a a, a topic and a subtopic and a sub-sub-subtopic that you could focus on. Here's some language that could fit with it, and then the teachers will source the um, will source the article. Okay. Um, so that keeps it a little more up to date. But some of the basic courses, you know, you can you know they're outdated. For example, and it's not even that outdated. Somali. Uh, We did maybe three years ago, and some of the articles just talk about old political issues, and now there's a whole new set of issues. So they become especially outdated in the less stable regions where things change so quickly. Um, But we would like to do it every day, but the government often doesn't pay for for doing it that often.
1: Well, uh, well, connected to that also uh, is uh, the the development here for uh, some of the agencies that we have. We do development and we also teach a class that's using the same materials that are being developed. And that iterative development uh, addresses another issue with curriculum development, that it's not an antiseptic process that you picture that you've done something perfect and then somebody tries to use it and it doesn't uh, excuse the pun, translate okay. very well in the classroom. So when you have that live interactivity of actually using the materials that you've just developed and getting feedback on them near real time, uh, we're able to develop uh, some pretty remarkable
4: programs and have had some really good success with that of recent date. What's some uh, client, you can share, like, you don't say the clients, but client feedback that you've gotten on, on your programs, both from the clients and also from the students that, that have come in from here. I guess, you know, when they leave the program? Have you guys ever heard that's, anything?
1: That's a really good question. Yeah, so feedback is the breakfast of champions here, and uh, and for the government, they're called CPARS, and it's all very formal, uh, but we also pay a lot of attention to all of the all of the comments and feedback we get from our instructors, as well as from the students. And with that, we're constantly a never-ending improvement, improving the programs that we have. Uh, and increasingly, we're asking for that feedback within uh, the few, first few days that they've been here, after a couple of weeks, again, uh, iteratively throughout the, uh, independent of what the client may be asking us for in terms of progress reporting, we're also doing our own measurements and feedback and capturing that and making changes for that specific class or overall for the way we uh, govern the school. And uh, that's a, a you know key cultural aspect of, of, uh, of our being responsive and uh, proactive about making changes that better the program, better the school.
2: Were you specifically asking about curriculum development projects, and or um, just in general? Generally,
4: so that, but also, um, you know, like when clients get back to you after their students have completed a course, mm-hmm. the kind of things they say they really liked about it that they, they didn't get elsewhere.
2: I see. I think it's maybe the personal attention, um, and I think something we do well here is maintaining uh, kind of a community and understanding that we all are from different cultures and we do a lot of cultural events that draw that out so um i think we do three or four cultural company-wide cultural events throughout the year where we um have food from the region i think our next one is chinese new year um and we have food from the region and do little activities and things like that so the whole school is invited and invited to participate so some of the students who are studying that particular language will run kind of a activity uh section or group um and then a lot of the departments will do different types of things just in that particular language um, so for example some of the programs like Thai we have a large Thai program and they do immersions uh, I think three times throughout the year and they'll do uh, well, Thai food but they'll run through stations and they'll just be a, a day of immersion so it'll be in one room downstairs and they have to go through customs they have to go you know, set up a tour and do things uh, like that at different stations um, and then they do that with teachers and with non non Teaching, wait, Thai native speakers who are not teachers, so they get a more authentic okay. experience. So, yeah, so, um, yeah. Cool. so the, the, that's part of our some of our programs too, which I think kind of give it more of a community feel and more um, grounded feel.
0: Right. I guess compounding off that, is there an opportunity, almost like an open house here at DLS, anytime during the year, where if someone's generally interested? And learning an extra language or thinking about it that they could come see the facilities uh, meet some of the people kind of see the classrooms is that is something that out there for this year or is there some way where someone can come here directly and connect uh, before they sign up for a class already or uh, something along those lines
3: uh, well we do we have a variety of kind of open house events throughout the year We don't really necessarily do one that's just open to to anybody who's interested but I guess that would be certainly a, a good idea um, We do have an open house around the holiday season where our students our clients um, you know our teachers, everybody comes. There's a lot of food, um, you know, festivities, decorations. Everybody's there. A lot of ch- you know chit chatting. Um, we do that during the holiday season. We also do um, we do open houses for teachers as well, for specific language groups, for people who are interested in teaching. Um, they come and they get a tour of the school and they have an opportunity to meet with one of our LTSs and have a one-on-one interview. Um, and we just give them kind of a short presentation. So it's not those are not job fairs because People get really nervous at job fairs. These are a little more informal, um, you know. Just encourages them to come and kind of have a conversation. Um, but it, and just you know, we certainly we have an open door policy um, if anybody is interested they can always just come um, and somebody will will make make the time to show them around and, and talk to them I mean Alma again our registrar she's extremely busy I don't know how she does it um, but she's always you know she's also very friendly and she's always willing to talk to people um, I mean she's an extrovert so she's always willing to talk to whoever um, is interested uh, so anybody is is more than welcome to call our main number um, and just inquire and ask and we can yeah. set something up um, but then again they can also they can just walk in off the street um, yeah. probably better to call ahead just to make sure the right person is available um, but I mean, do you have anything to add
2: no yeah And our Alma for a tour of the facility almost available but each of our LTSs who specializes in that particular language or region um, if we do know in advance we can always set up an appointment for interview informational uh, session or whatever it is uh, and even people who are just interested in the company in general are welcome to come and reach out to any one of us as well because we're always just open to learning about new people and having new people learn about us
4: When you're recruiting for instructors, it's kind of interesting because it sounds like you guys have a pretty in-depth feedback loop that you give your instructors and you're using new technologies like the remote work uh, teaching technology that you were talking about do you find that to be challenging sometimes with new instructors or do you do you purposely target instructors that are open to that kind of approach?
2: Yeah. um, We are constantly looking for teachers who have uh, a variety of skills. So we do get a lot of teachers who have been teaching for a really long time and Are less flexible, um, and we like to use them in the traditional setting with maybe a traditional student. Mm -hmm. But there's there's limits to what we can train on, and we always want the teachers to be innovative. So we do look for people who you know may not have that much teaching experience, but are really enthusiastic about learning new approaches or you know adapting to different learning needs of the the students. So we are always looking for people who are really versatile and flexible and enthusiastic in general because that tends to be more of an impact on the learner than the actual knowledge and not to say you can't you, right. you do need knowledge of the language but a lot of that is in books and and you can you can easily train on the language um, but uh, we do do a lot of teacher training here because we like to build up uh, kind of the capability um, instead of just grabbing it from here and there and there. Right.
0: That's great. Um, I think one of the last things I want to ask, uh, Kate, being a recruiter for a lot of our listeners who are building resumes, uh, kind of the three bigs and three do's and three don'ts uh, that you've seen on resumes, (laughs) because I've talked with many other recruiters, whether it's on the contracting side or the private sector side, of just things that are head-scratchers to you that you see... More often than once, and also just things that make your life a little easier as well. When it comes down to finding teachers or finding uh, finding new hires as well.
3: Sure, um, and I'm sure Molly has uh, some some uh, contributions. Actually, we've given presentations on that together. Um, so, as far as we start with the don'ts first, so we can end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> three big don'ts. Um, don't I don't I want. It, there's a place for a CV and there's a place for a resume. Um, we don't want CVs. Uh, CVs tend to be long, um, and I, I, it's great to see you know a comprehensive snapshot of your experience. But we want a snapshot. Um, so most most recruiters who get any volume of resumes want one page, um, you know one maybe two pages. Just keep it relatively short uh it doesn't matter how much experience you have everything can be kind of if you have if you have the right experience the recruiter will see it and then they will call you to talk about the details so highlight the main bullet points keep it short keep it sweet um the other thing that is kind of actually the biggest thing that's baffling to me is um misspell anything that's misspelled um poor grammar. Uh, If if somebody submits a a cover letter and it's addressed to the wrong person, or the wrong company, or the wrong position, just double-check everything. Um, Especially if you're going to be a teacher. If you're applying to be a teacher or something else in the education field, we want to see that you have the capacity to at least use spell-check. Um,
2: And even if you're, especially if you're a non-native, because we deal with a lot of non-natives, get an English native speaker to look at it. So, it even raises red flags if you're a non-native English Yeah,
3: because you're supposed to be able to um, ostensibly, you're supposed to be able to explain grammar. So if you can't use it in your own application, that is a red flag. So double check, make sure it's, you know, uh, addressed to the right person, right position, and that there are no major spelling errors or anything like that. Um, And then... when in doubt, uh, just keep it limited to the you know. Don't put a lot of extraneous information. Even if you're if you're trying to if you have a really short resume and you want to try to fill it out a bit, um, just keep it to the relevant information. Um, you no know, recruiters are much more likely to be happy with a short resume that is to the point than even a one pager that has a bunch of extraneous information because it doesn't really do anything for them. Um, did you have a don't you want to add?
2: Well, d- just
3: one thing. I think a lot of
2: people do this is they'll put a lot of uh, a professional profile that'll be one page yeah. that's uh, sometimes in prose and this it's unnecessary. We can look at the bullet points very quickly. You were at this position for this long, this position for this long, you taught, you taught, you taught. Okay, that's plenty all I need to know is, you know, the places you taught, how long you taught and the clientele. So, it's that, pretty easy from a teaching. I think teachers' resumes are very easy and straightforward yeah. to read. Um
3: and part of that's a cultural thing yeah. because depending where you come from, resumes take on, you know, in the U.S., we don't tend to put, like, birth date and, you know, marital status and all of that. So um, short and sweet. That's what I'll say. Um, for uh do, uh do keep a simple format. I don't need a lot of colors and pictures and different fonts. Um, do introduce yourself. If you are going to include a cover letter, do introduce yourself. Um, succinctly and give a really just answer all the questions that are asked of you if the if you're responding to a job posting that's asking for availability and salary and all of that answer all the questions Um, and do uh, you know do be a little bit immodest Um, some people don't like to put especially cultures different cultures some people don't like to put a lot of Don't like to sound like they're bragging. Um, If you've received awards, if you, you know, anything, you know, extraordinary that you've accomplished, put it on your resume. Um, If it's relevant to the position, that's your time to kind of brag, so don't be immodest.
4: Front and center, are there any... Certifications you want to see from instructors?
3: Uh, for these specific, if it's a teaching position, anything to do, um, you know, OPI testing, uh, familiarity with the ILR scale, DLPT, um, there are certainly keywords that, that we look for. Um, it depends on the position. You know, we have a, an English language instruction, an ELT program in the UAE um, that requires a master's in like TESOL or something similar. Um, so uh, you know the celta those kinds of um, if you have the certifications for a lot of the positions they're not required, but if you have them and you know they 're relevant to the position, make sure those are like front and center or you know at least within the body of your of your text. hope that wasn 't too long winded cool.
0: so. no that makes sense because we've we 've done pieces i think on quite a few podcasts about especially language students, uh, to get their actual ILR-level testing. Because we've seen it a lot in the educational sector where they say, I have advanced-level Arabic. Mm -hmm. And for lack of a better term, you've been in Arabic for three years in a college environment. You might not be at the advanced level by any stretch of imagination. I've done language testing when I got out of school, and I was humbled to a very, very large extent not knowing where I truly was. So the ability to go out there and get your ILR le- level exam, whether if you're military the DLPT or what are some of the actful. recommended the I, you can act
2: full. Okay. I, I don't know if they do public testing, so. but we do. We do testing too. Uh, just we can give you an ILR level. Um, it's recognized by uh, some government agencies. Um, it depends on which testing they accept, but we get pretty close to what. People will look at it and say, okay, you've been tested at one of the schools, um, and that's acceptable, too.
0: I think that's really helpful, too, especially if you think of, say, um, a student from Georgetown. I I mentor a lot of cadets at Georgetown. If they're coming out of, say, an Arabic class for four years, coming here to DLS to get an actual ILR-level exam, Mm it would be very helpful because even if you are a even a 1 plus or a 2 when you think you're a 3 or a 4, just knowing that is very, very helpful, mm-hmm. uh, whether it comes down to job prospects and also just, in reality, how to get better too, because that's something with Critical Language Mentor, the whole premise of me building this website is to kind of be able to help yourself, or once you find out where you are on that language scale, you can say, okay, for lack of a better term, I suck at listening. So I need to be able to get to a point where I'm much, much better. Whether it's a you're a zero plus or a one or a two and you think you're a three, being able to find out that score is very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I know I have a lot of students, cadets and language personnel reach out to me and say, hey, where can I get tested? I can't take the DLPT. I'm not a military member. Mm-hmm. So um, language testing here would be very, very helpful for a lot of even personnel I know here locally in the D.C. metro area. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big, big thing to yeah. know truly where you are.
2: Yeah, that's a big thing if you're a non-native speaker to have an ILR level or yeah. an ACTFL, because we can translate ACTFL um, as well, but it's pretty important because oftentimes we'll say fluency, and you see like six different languages. I don't know, you know if one's right. close to native, near native, because we can hire near natives, uh, three above a three, um, especially in kind of very uh, less commonly taught languages. We can hire three and up um, in those languages like Creole or Tagreenya, right. exactly. yeah. the two yeah, that have come Tigrinya. up. So we we can hire people at that at that level. But if we don't know, maybe you're a heritage speaker, and you can just get tested, and you don't even have to study that language. It may just be there
3: so that would be kind of a another just one last do is especially in this industry just you don't want to be i just said don't be a modest but you also do want to be recruiters are yeah we really appreciate it when you're realistic about it saying that you're fluent in seven languages unless you are a linguistic god we don't believe it um and i'm you know it's it's fine um just be realistic about it. And if you have any scores, anything to back it up. Um, and it's also really helpful if we, uh, sometimes it's obvious what a native language, who's what their native language is and individual's native languages, is, but it's very helpful to identify that um, if you're applying for like an instruction position or something.
4: It's one thing that I see a lot also is it's always a red flag when there's like seven languages listed and it says fluent. Yeah. And you, they're, they're not... You know they don't come from that background.
2: Or even yeah. proficient. So it usually And you means, know, okay like, you did a semester a of Swahili but yeah, yeah. yeah but so. it,
4: a lot of people don't know that you, like putting those scores up there or getting them is a big step and there are some schools that are kind of leading the way like that, like Maryland actually test their students on ILR scale.
0: Yeah, for example, I believe so we've done a podcast with the University of Maryland before Mm -hmm. with their Persian and Arabic flagship programs, and they actually test their students when they come out uh, to be at a three or a three plus in Persian, Farsi, or Arabic. So it's one of those things where I think that should be across the entire educational board. That's way above my pay grade, for lack of a better term, but it's one of those things where it's a big, big need in the educational sector to, Mm -hmm. to truly know where you are, because For a lot of students as well, you look at they might be a dual major of business and finance and they're taking a Chinese course and they might think that they're intermediate level but they might know the very, very basics. So even just getting an ILR exam to know that you're at a 1-1, that's still something where if you know a language at a 1-1, it's very basic but at the same time if you're a business major, you know Chinese or Mm -hmm. Russian or French or Spanish, it's one of those things where it's very, very helpful. But to know where you are is is a big, big need in, mm-hmm. in, yeah. in the language sector.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So,
0: um, all right, we're at about 48 minutes right now, so I figure we can uh, we can start to wrap things up. Um, what are the biggest needs you have right now when it comes down to how Critical Language Mentor can help from even just a job posting standpoint or getting the word out about DLS? I know we've done this podcast, but as we go forward in the future, kind of where do you see DLS going and then... How can we help as a website, uh, sounding board, something along those lines?
3: Well, I think think there are a few different avenues, keeping in mind you're, that you're, the target population, most people listening are probably not language instructors, or are the types of people who would be um, like native speaking language instructors at DLS. Um, so the anybody who's potentially interested in taking language classes. Um, getting that word out that they can go through our website um they can contact any of us i mean we're you know we're relatively small in terms of full-time staff so everybody knows everybody and what everybody does so you if even if somehow you got a hold of somebody in accounting they would find a way like you know they just get up and walk down the hall um so just knowing that we are very we're an open door Um, kind of organization uh, and we want to hear from you. If you have an interest um, and you're not really sure how to go about it, don't be shy. There are no stupid questions.
2: Or yeah. we'll answer stupid yeah. questions. Or we, will we won't judge you for them. We won't tell you
1: it, Stu. Well, so one of the, the uh, this doesn't necessarily serve DLS, but I think it serves perhaps your, your listeners that are here, that uh, language-enabled professionals is uh, going to be a consistent need. And I know that uh, Google and Apple and all of these companies that do international business uh, thrive on finding people who are smart, and uh, have uh, another language in their uh, portfolio. So uh, from that vantage point, I'm not sure how we can help them, but you can by uh, letting them know that the world needs them and that languages are not going to go away especially at the cultural level uh, so you can do machine translation you can do uh, Google translate and you can probably get by and buy a ticket but if you needed to persuade somebody or to really understand at a philosophical level you need to have you need to have language and and for some people it may be going to that country and spending time and for others, it may be that they've had it at their dining room table all their lives and have been ignoring it, and maybe they can go back to the dining room table and pick it up. Uh, so uh, fr- from that standpoint, if you're interested in language, it's a smart thing to do. Even at uh, an elderly age, and I'm getting there myself, that uh, paying attention to language keeps you uh, sharp and smarter. So back to what we can uh, do from a standpoint of, of looking for places to work, we're always looking for good people and because of the nature of, of our uh, population being younger and some of them will move on, uh, we're, always, we're always looking for good people and we may not have something for you right away uh, but connect with us and uh, it won't be a waste of your time. We'll uh, we, we roll around with our wheelbarrow open side up looking for good people, and we've been uh, gifted with a bunch of them. Uh, Finally, uh, I think one of our secrets to success here has been alluded to is that we create an environment of trust and respect. And uh, for a lot of the students who come out of a military setting where there's clear, uh, you know, uh, do this in this order in that way, for them uh, they're they're treated as an adult. And I think in college students also, uh, you're not necessarily treated like an adult in all circumstances. You're, uh, and here it's the other way around. We assume that you came here to do something good. The assumption is. Is that the instructor came here to do something good and what we do as, a, as an institution is facilitate that relationship it's fearful enough to feel stupid all day long trying to learn a language you don't need to be made to feel incompetent as an adult and so we take care of that part of it and, and, and continue to accept the fact that as you learn a language you're going to spend all day long feeling a little less stupid a little more stupid than you, than you really are
0: that sounds great. And uh, I think really coming from even a standpoint of myself, say, five years ago as a cadet at Indiana University, um, a place like DLS is absolutely fantastic for the ability to get your ILR level score, whether you're a uh, student, um, a civilian learning a language or a cadet who has taken the DLPT but would like to get another another facet, another language score because the DLPT is focused on the military aspect for good reason but I also know that I probably struggle with some of the things that some of my counterparts in the educational sector do not. So the ability to get that language, language testing here is a huge thing and then your ability for language services across the board I think is very, very helpful for anyone listening in the D.C. metro area. Um, and then, of course, we'll... Uh, If new jobs come up, uh, we'll be be happy to post them on our job board and also on the Critical Language Mentor Facebook page as well. So we'll keep everybody updated with that.
4: And do you have anything else to add, Alex? No, that's it. Sounds like a good place to work and a good place to find out where you really stand. Thanks, Fed. Okay.
0: Um, Jim, Kate, Molly, we appreciate the time and everything you do here at DLS, and we
3: look forward to working with you in the future. Thanks, Garrett. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Thank you.